This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Oh, hi, hello, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, Liv, here with yet another conversation episode. I know I say this all the time, but this is so the coolest part of my job. I mean, all of it is cool, let's be honest, but the fact that I get these super smart and academic nerds coming on the show to share their studies and their passions and their knowledge, the things they're so incredibly knowledgeable on and just want to share with others, I'm I'm just so fucking grateful that not only do you listeners want to hear this stuff, these like heavy and fascinating episodes on these deeply specific topics, but also that I have so many incredible people that want to come on the show. Fuck, it's cool. In fact, it's so cool that I often have so, so, so many guests to talk to, so many that I can't even fit them on the show for sometimes even months after I record which is what is the case here? So I spoke with David Wright way back in maybe October. Like it was really close to spooky season, but too late to have it actually air during the spookiest of seasons. But this episode was so much fun to record. I mean, as always, but still it was because while we talked about monsters, monsters of Greek myth, monster theory as a theory, 
and so much more. It's one of my more freewheeling conversations because you all just know how much I can go off when we're talking broad mythological topics like this. It's so funny to hear the difference when an academic is sharing something I'm totally unaware of versus something I know a lot about like this. What a time. But also, David and I just had loads of fun chatting about this. There's so much to say about these monsters and how they became what they are in the history of Greek myth, but also the idea of this monster theory as a concept. It's all super intriguing. As always, honestly, this is just so much fucking fun, and I'm thrilled to finally, finally share it with you so many months later. I'm doing something similar right now, actually recording a load of episodes, so many that I'll have months and months worth of conversations. It's so fucking fun! But I digress. Again, in today's episode, Dave and I spoke about the best of Greek mythology's monsters, including, obviously, Medusa. Lots of Medusa because I am me. But also we talked about my beloved Hecaton Kyries and the Gigantomachy, among other things. Specifically, we were looking at this monster theory. Lots of interesting insights to the invention of these monsters, where the ideas came from, and what they can say about the humans who developed them. Also, we just had a great chat about how cool and exciting these creatures often are, because, I mean, Greek mythological monsters are amazing. So sit back and enjoy insights into these fascinating and insightful creatures of myth. Conversations, the many faces of monsters, Monster Theory with David J. Wright. One thing I've learned lately is just the way that the Greeks put snakes into their myths is super interesting. Oh, I'm so, and that's kind of like what partially got me into like this research avenue. It's just sort of like snakes can be very negative. Like I think like, you know, and I feel like students immediately identify that. Oh yeah, like snakes are bad because of the Bible, you know, but like actually there are times when snakes are very positive and these sort of like protector figures and they are much more like polyvalent. Well, and I, I really just appreciate the way that they... I mean, and I guess most of these, you know, and now maybe we're just in this episode and I'll use this all, but (laughs) um, because I recently did an episode on like Typhon, Typhius, whatever, Mm. and Echidna and their use of snakes is so fascinating. And like, they are technically kind of villains. Like there is that whole moment where Typhon is definitely a villain, Mm -hmm. but ultimately they're just sort of like exist to be the parents of other monsters. Mm-hmm. But the way they use snakes is fascinating to me. There's so many different versions of Typhon, but all of them are just like so many snakes. And sometimes it's like he has snakes for fingers mm-hmm. and or like snakes just growing off of his shoulders and like this very wild use of it that I'm so curious about. And Yeah. And like Cerberus has snakes sometimes too. Yeah. Like a snake mane. Yeah, that's super weird when Cerberus is like, he's got a mane and it's snakes. <laughs> and it's snakes. Why did Alex have to be snakes? I, I think there's a tradition, too, that like, you know, Pausanias loves to sort of be like, that's all the myth and that's crazy talk or whatever. Like, I think there, there's like, a, I think it's Pausanias that says like, actually, Cerberus is a giant snake. And that's, it's a snake that guards <laughs> the underworld, which like makes sense, right? And like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I like, I mean, 
Pausanias. I I've I haven't read a ton of Pausanias, but I've read um The Life of Theseus. And no, that's Plutarch. What am I talking about? Either way, they're very similar in that treatment of they, they, like they like the rational. They, they both are rationalizers. Yeah. Exactly of yeah. something that's like explicitly myth. Like I love yeah. the Plutarch's Theseus, where it's liter- It's like, oh, these are the things that I believe. Like, but these are the things that I think are fake. And he really tries to piece out like what's real about Theseus versus myth. Even though ultimately, I mean, obviously all of Theseus is a myth. But even still, the stuff he decides is realistic is still like absurd. And you're like, yeah, okay, I don't totally know how how you're like picking and choosing out of these things, but sure. Yeah. Yeah, Plutarch is interesting because I think scholars like him because he's almost like rational, but then sometimes he just believes the most ridiculous things. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, Pausanias is pretty similar too. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'm trying to think of, what, I've thought of him recently, and I think it might even have just been I've tried to um, figure out where the like myth of Minthy comes from, like the the nymph who is transformed into mint because. You know, usually it's that she like uh, Hades had an affair with her, so Persephone or maybe Demeter turned her into mint. And I'm pretty sure that there's only like a couple references to her, and I'm pretty sure one of them is Pausanias. Mm. So it's just like she became this big myth specifically because she's a foil to Hades and Persephone. So in all the the things now that retell their relationship, they always use Minthy as this like this foil or this like person you know who's like into hades and therefore is a problem or what have you but ultimately like the myths of her are like pausanias saying something like there's this mountain in i think arcadia or Achaea or something where where there's mint and they say it was a nymph and then somehow that's become like this epic yeah. <laughs> like myth about a woman who was transformed into mint and ultimately it's like yeah. a way to explain a region or something right now that's really interesting. It makes me think too, like, well, like I can't forget his name now, but like, of course, another example, but like, he does all these sort of like, I think a Hellenistic writer who does like poems about like potions and things like that, and often mm. he sort of like uses like metaphorical names for things. Like, I seem to remember him saying, "Oh yeah, and you mix nymphs in," <laughs> which is like, I think he means mint. Um, mm. So that's really, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and in the case of that nymph i think the whole point is to just explain the use of mint in covering up the smell of decay like for Mm -hmm. the dead and so in order Mm -hmm. to account for the fact that they used mint you know in like death practices they would then say like oh it's because the mint Mm -hmm. is associated with the underworld because of this nymph who is transformed into mint right so it's just interesting to track those little ones yeah yeah but ostensibly we're here to talk about monster theory monsters right we were there for a little bit with typhon and then we kind of like yeah no no, but i love that you know i love the transition there yeah oh i know i mean i just love talking about mythology clearly i do it literally all the time and i'm still excited about it all the time yeah same to i feel like i've just been studying this for a long time and i don't get bored with it now yeah. So, do you primarily teach myth, or I'm kind of all over the time? place. Like, actually, like, I, it's funny. Yeah. I never took one myth class in mm. high school or college or grad school, and then, but I kind of like, got into myth through like studying Latin and Greek literature. Mm. And I remember the first time I had to teach a myth class, I'm like, oh my god! Like, obviously, I know how to do this. I've like written a dissertation on a myth, <laughs> you know. But I'm like, how do you teach myth? So, but I've been doing it. Actually, this is my second myth, uh, myth class now. But it's 
it's definitely one of my favorite classes to teach. I think because you have the myth heads who come in, which which are a blessing and a curse, <laughs> some ways. Yeah. But um, there's just I just think it's so fascinating how you can use myth to talk about so many different topics. You use myth to talk about gender. You can use myth to talk about philosophy. You can myth to talk about race. You can use myth to talk about um, you know trauma. It's just it's just so fascinating. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's so true. Love teaching myth. It's interesting. I bet you teaching it like that is so similar to what I experienced with my listeners, except that they're so much more there. You were so much more accessible to them because the thing I face most is people getting confused by all the variations or like, Mm -hmm. you know, the things you're, you learn from pop culture versus the truth of the myths, you know, or what actually exists in the ancient sources. Yeah. I definitely get that a lot, but it's kind of interesting where like, I'll have some students coming in, I think, who like are interested in myth. They're like, oh, but I want to know about the real versions of them. And some of them are already kind of gatekeeping. I sort of think, like, yeah, well, like myths do shift over time, and there like there is no such thing as the true version, you know, of of Odysseus. There's actually so many different variants, and it's all about like people in power trying to say, oh, this is the variant that I want, and there's usually like some sort of social political reason uh, why they want that, and then like. You know, you come to like the medieval renaissance, modern era too, where you have like these myths are constantly changing. But I think it's kind of funny when people get mad, like, oh, yeah, like this modern person is changing the myth. Uh, I'm like, well, it's always been changing. But there are some times when people do change in a problematic way too. Like you take the the myth of Persephone and Hades and and try and fashion it as a love story. Or like, yeah, you can change it, but then you still kind of have to acknowledge that like the origin of this myth is about violence. Um, so it's kind of tricky when I have students come in being like, Hades was actually a great guy who who loved his wife. I'm like, ooh, we gotta <laughs> we gotta talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I have I have huge respect for one adaptation of Hades and Persephone, and that's Laura Olympus, because mm-hmm. I think she's doing it the right way. Like I think she's completely removed the abduction part and just like taken these two characters and made them different. Um, and she treats Demeter well in a way that a lot of adaptations love to demonize Demeter and make Hades this like super loving guy. And I'm like, I don't know what you think you're doing here, but I hate it. Like I hate it yeah. a lot. It's kind of like a form of misogyny of like sort of make Demeter like the, you know, the overbearing mother. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I face the original myth a lot. People, those people coming at me because I, you know, I like Medusa or something. Usually that's all online and not about my podcast. But I do love the people who love to scream about the original myth of Medusa and how. Yeah, that was one of them too. And maybe it's a factor in our conversation later. But I had students coming to me because I feel like I kind of know some of the Tumblr stuff just from being on Twitter. I, I, I oh, wish gosh, I were on yeah. Tumblr, but Tumblr, I'm so overwhelmed by. But one of these days, maybe I'll get into it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But had students coming saying that uh, Athena transformed Medusa to protect her, mm-hmm. and I kept like, "Where is this coming from? Is there actually Tumblr. an ancient thing?" And it's it's, it's from Tumblr. You know? It's from Tumblr, absolutely. I get it all the time. Yeah. Um, and like, I like the idea behind it. I mean, yeah. it all relies on Ovid's version right. entirely, right? Which, like, fine. I like Ovid's version. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, I like the idea behind it. This idea that Athena was actually being like a good woman. You know, but it's we not, want we want so not. hard to make her the good woman. You know, we we really want Athena not to be some sort of patriarch, some upholder of the patriarchy. You know, that's um, the thing. And it, but it's like even even if she did to protect her, she's still upholding the patriarchy because yeah, that should not be a form of protection like that. Right. You know, it, that's dark. Um. Yeah. yeah. I have people bringing that to me a lot, and I try to yeah, like very kindly point out the issues with it. And I know it's well intentioned, but. But also it's like, 
I don't know. Medusa is so interesting without having to invent right. Tumblr memes about her, yeah. <laughs> like change things. And there are good and better, you know, adaptations of modern feminist adaptations of the Medusa myth too. Well, exactly. And and the thing about it, I mean, and obviously I can go on about Medusa forever. That's she's kind of my thing. But even if you go back to like Hesiod, he's not saying that she's some evil monster at all. He doesn't even remotely imply that. And then, you know, basically Hesiod has what I take as as Medusa. And, you know, I don't love Hesiod because he did not love women um not, <laughs> i don't know no. if you've heard no yeah <laughs> um, my students are like wow it's super misogynistic i'm like yep <laughs> that's welcome to hesiod oh my god pandora in works and days it will always blow my mind <laughs> like yeah the, the way he goes off anyway um but yeah no i mean even that version of medusa like by a you know a, a source that is notably misogynist um is still kind to her it's literally like yeah, she was a gorgon. Doesn't define what that is. Uh, you know, she had a bad fate. Like it's, it's actually kinder. So it's yeah. just fascinating to me the whole Medusa. Oh, no, you're absolutely but. right. Yeah. So speaking of monsters, I don't know anything about monster theory. What is it? I mean, I could clearly talk, keep talking about myth generally too. But um, yeah, what is what is the theory behind it? I will read the thing that you sent me <laughs> as well. But I'm glad to just have you talking to me because that's easier. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I kind of give a brief overview of it. Like, yeah. Every- Whenever I give like my talk on, it's kind of funny because like, I like so I wrote a dissertation that I'm turning into a book on the giants in, in Greek and Roman mythology, mm. and funny, like classicists are kind of historically have been very averse to theory, like oh theory, ooh, like but it's kind of awful because that's why our discipline is so stuck in the past <laughs> for so many reasons. <laughs> uh, but yeah, aversion to theory is one of them, and I kind of wanted to be like not like the other classicists, uh, and I'm like oh I'm writing a dissertation on monsters, I should really like. You know, I heard this thing called Monster Theory. I should check it out. And actually, it didn't really incorporate into my disc, but I think it's going to, you know, I just, it will work its way into my, whatever I turn my dissertation into. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, it's the idea that, like, monsters are some sort of, like, a reflection of some sort of cultural anxiety or even desire or, or, or fantasy. Uh, mainly, this seems to be more, more the anxiety portion of it. Like, if you think of the Latin word, monstrum it's related to the word monstrare to show or the, mm. the verb monere to warn so something about like advising and, and warning with them um and so the idea that they're like so it basically has these different theses like the first thesis is that yeah, the monster is a cultural body the second thesis is that the monster always escapes think about like in movies right <laughs> how there's always a sequel the monster always comes back and like you can bring that to um like mythology where you have like because i'm interested in the giants and, but the giants is a, a different iteration of the titans are the, are the titans monsters i mean they can't really kind of see what they are but they're kind of like you know part of that system of opposition to zeus's order but then typhon is also part of that too so all these iterations mm-hmm. of like these monsters kind of keep uh coming back and this idea that these these cultural fears kind of keep coming back they're, sometimes they sort of shift mm-hmm. um so it's the idea that like the monsters can sort of reflect something about society so we have like so many female monsters right and you sort of see them, okay like what, <laughs> what what is the society saying and when, when you make a woman you know have snake for hair and she can turn you to stone like what's that mm. say about the society <laughs> so yeah there's yeah. always a different sort of idea that like the monster is other it sort of often reflects some sort of marginalized uh group in society so you see, see like, sort of a female monster with say the sirens or with Medusa, but then obviously you have male monsters too. Out of the Cyclops, 
you can kind of see him as like he's the uncivilized, in scare quotes, you know, foreign mm-hmm. other who doesn't really like follow the rules of society. Actually, there's a great article coming out by by Jackie Murray that she argues the whole race system going on in the Odyssey, where like basically um, the Cyclops, what is he? He's a shepherd. And mm-hmm. what does the like, what what is he says slaves back home? What are they? Shepherds. You have Eumaeus, mm. the the shepherd, and so you kind of see that like this is telling the story of the Cyclops. Like, oh, he's a scary shepherd who's going to come and eat us all, and this is and this is why we enslave these people, you know, back mm-hmm. home. So it's sort of like you kind of see this how the Cyclops is sort of this this emanation or this sort of representation of like the fear of the people they enslave back home. That's really interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was talking to Joel Christensen the other day, uh, for the show too, and talking about that kind of thing and, and all the issues of the Odyssey and the fear of other and fear of foreigners and all of that that comes in. That's yeah. Fascinating. Um, so I would, I mean, I want to hear more about this in general, but also just the giants alone. So the giants are fascinating to me and they, they're so hard to find sourcing on, you Mm -hmm. know, like I tried to cover the gigantomachy. And, and like, you know, all we really have that survives is like Apollodorus and he, well, pseudo Apollodorus, and he's just so brief. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's just nothing in there. So I'm so curious, I mean, about the giants in general. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Cause having right dissertation on this, like, it, yeah. it's hard to find. And I was sort of drawn to them because they come up a lot in Latin poetry. And yeah. like, I definitely kind of have a whole theory about that but you're right like they're mentioned in hesiod but there is like we get the titanomachy we get the typhonomachy but there's no gigantomachy but we get a lot in art like a lot of archaic art does have the gigantomachy mm-hmm. i'm fascinated by the way giants look in greek and roman art generally like in early greek art they're either heroic nudes or they're hoplites but they're sort of the heavily armed soldiers that kind of became emblematic of the polis in the archaic mm-hmm. period and, and, and classical periods where in some ways it kind of makes them all look the same, where they're, they're, they all, the Olympians are sort of distinct. They have their own, like, sort of separate, like, distinct characteristics where all oh, the giants are kind of these, like, these monstrous figures. They're still kind of human in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there's a shift in, like, the fourth and third, third century where they get snake legs. Um, I mean, love that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who doesn't, again, speaking of snakes yeah. and, and the, the complicated, <laughs> you know, significance that, that, that snakes can have in, in the Greco Roman world. So there's an interesting shift in the giant's uh, appearance. But, like, yeah, we get snippets. Like, obviously, Apollodorus is, like, a full version of it. But, like, you get references to it in, in, in Greek tragedy and things like that. But, yeah, it's you know, not until Apollodorus. And then, like, in Latin poetry, you just kind of get – you won't really get the whole – I mean, get the story in very brief moments. But, like, we have all this mm-hmm. sort of gigantomachic imagery. Mm-hmm. But what I'm sort of fascinated by is, is like, kind of in the archaic Greek period – and afterwards, it kind of has the significance of like, uh, this is what scholars often say, but I think they kind of overstate it, is that like the gigantomachy is basically order versus chaos. Like the Olympians mm-hmm. bringing order to chaos and then like sort of transferably, like this is like Greeks bringing order or, you know, over, you know, pushing order upon barbarians. And like mm-hmm. oh, the, the, the giants are the Persians or the giants later are the Celts who are invading Europe and the the fourth, third, second uh, centuries BCE. And there is some evidence mm. to suggest that in some of the texts uh, here and there, but there are sometimes, like, say, um, in your pretty's Ion, if you remember, like, the, uh, the the Athenian chorus goes to the Temple of Delphi and they see the, the giants on the temple there. And what does that mean there, like, when they're looking at the giants and 
it actually can mean civil strife sometimes, so an, an internal conflict as opposed to an external one. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about like sort of like a monsters reflecting sort of cultural anxiety. You kind of easily see them representing like yeah a fear of of civil conflict, and then it kind of makes sense why the Romans <laughs> would, would would be into them because in the first century BCE it's just like civil war after civil war after civil war. Yeah, the Romans did have a lot of that going they, on. That they did. That they, it's funny how people like try to make them sort of like the Romans, the 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 symbols of the bringer of order. It's like you guys were always fighting each other. I mean, yeah, if it wasn't civil wars, it was the Punic Wars, and like they weren't fighting each other there, but they're still they don't look good. No. You know, like Rome. I don't know. Yeah, Rome. I'm I'm not in Rome a lot. You know, in my studying, I guess for this podcast. Um, but every yeah. time I come up with something or find something, it's it's constantly just it's. The differences between the way the the Romans, you know, told stories and things versus the Greeks is really fascinating to me. Um, I was looking at today. I was just editing an episode uh, about witches in mm. in classical myth generally and, and Roman and and um, I talked to uh, Maxwell Paul. Mm. Do you know him on Twitter? <laughs> so much Twitter. Um, but there was a lot of Roman there because he studies one of them. And it's just so interesting because the Roman witches versus Greek witches are very like, to me at least, they seem very, they are like the way the Romans worried about the, their wives and like what their wives could do to them yeah. versus Greek witches, which actually feel supernatural in all, like in a much more organic kind of way, I guess, you know. Mm-hmm. Cersei versus like some woman who's gonna you know ensnare you in an inn (laughs) it just feels very different yeah um the giants too have always interested me because I love uh you know how I think for the most part it all is supposed to have taken place like in Italy right or in Sicily even specifically actually the 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 location of the giant company it's like you know as myths change like sometimes it's in greece sometimes it's italy but i think like the roman poets are taking mm. advantage of like oh my god our peninsula is sort of war-torn especially in sicily sometimes yeah. part of it in sicily too and you know certain parts of the of the civil war in the in the 30s uh bce was taking place around there so i think they're kind of very intentional right. of like oh we're going to take advantage of the fact that it w- takes place here because you know it's representing our, our civil conflict that makes sense see and i like it as a way to understand volcanoes <laughs> I mean, that, that's the other thing too. Also, it is like you know, you know, monsters yeah. can be fear of natural disasters. Uh, yeah, that's what I always love. It's just the idea that like that wherever they buried them just happened to be. Oh well, you know that that volcano is just that happens to be where Zeus buried the giant, yeah. and you know it's just a little angry right now. And there's that's overlap with them as civil strife too, because like there's the tradition that uh, Mount Etna was you know spurting lava or smoke or whatever when Julius Caesar or right before Julius Caesar was assassinated, which would bring about uh, a whole series of civil conflict. Like the idea is like Typhon. Like sometimes it's Typhon under there. Sometimes yeah, it's and then sometimes it's giants. Or yeah. it's Enceladus. I think it's like there's three different people. Or three different I think, monsters. Is it, isn't Briarius? I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's what I was also think I... Briarius is on the side of the Titans in Hesiod. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's on the side of the Olympians yeah. and he said but you, you yeah. think you'd be on the side of the Titans given his birth and given, given no, his but monstrosity because the Hecatonchires which is my favorite word don't even know if oh, I say it right but great. it's the all time best word in Greek myth Yeah. Um. but they the I mean the reason I well from what I see of how they side with Zeus is because they kept getting imprisoned by everybody else yeah. right because you know, Uranus imprisoned them, and then as soon as Kronos, you know, did away with him, he freed them, and then 
imprison them again because he was also an asshole. Um, and then so the idea is that like I think Zeus freed them and then he he freed them and then gave them the privilege of guarding the underworld. Yeah. <laughs> and so therefore, or Tartarus rather. And so they were still tucked away and nobody could see them. But somehow they were freer than they were under Yeah, Kronos. he like he freed them and it, made, and it seemed like he gave them such a privilege, but it really was a way of like keeping them far away, right? Yeah, um, it's like, you're not imprisoned in Tartarus, you get to guard Tartarus. Isn't that nice? I'm so much nicer of a ruler. And then like, what I think is interesting too is like because I'm also interested in Thetis. I'm co-editing a volume on mm. on Thetis, and that she has the power to summon Briaria slash slash Yeah, and she when uses they... it when like Zeus's kids are you know rebelling against him. So again, we have this sort of civil strife thing, but he again he kind of becomes a sort of watchdog for Zeus. But again, mm. Thetis is the one who can summon him, which is really interesting. Yeah, I'd I never think. thought of that connection. I tried to cover that coup. Of course, there's so little sourcing on right. it too, but it was interesting to cover and just the idea that, yeah, that like that's sort of what gained her favor for then for yeah. her to use that favor in the Iliad. And oh my God, it's all just so, I mean, I, the interconnection between some of these stories, even though you know that they were so disparate in terms of like when they were written and developed and all of these things, it's so, it's just so extra interesting. Um, Briarius appears in my new cocktail book. That's coming out. Oh, I think I saw a tweet about that. So I'm excited as, yeah. as a monsters person. I'm interested in him in particular too. So I'll maybe I'll become a new cocktail. We'll see. It's it's got IPA in it actually. Oh really? No, I like, I I like IPAs. You said that. There you go. So you might like Briarius's brew. That's Ooh. what it's called. Cool. <laughs> I just had to use a re- had to find a reason to repeatedly use the word Hecaton Kyrie in a book about cocktails. No, that's awesome. But yeah, I think he's interesting because like. There's definitely a version where he's in Etna. The whole who's under Etna it seems to have been mm. like a, a debate. And like mm-hmm. sometimes it's Typhon, sometimes it's Enceladus. And then I think there's I think it's Calemicus. Calemicus or like oh, a okay. that says. So okay, it's a more it's more obscure to have him under there. Uh, that's the more obscure mm-hmm. version. But yeah, I think he's on the side of the Olympians in Houston. As you said, it makes sense because like Zeus like kind of frees him or whatever. But there Freeze, is a yeah. version <laughs> where he's on the side of the Titans. And mm. like Virgil kind of plays with all these expectations in it because there's a um, passage in the Aeneid where Aeneas is compared to Briaria slash Aegean. And mm. it's interesting because you think like, oh, he's going to be like Briarius Aegean because Briarius Aegean is on the side of the Olympians who are the good guys. Aeneas is the good guy. So like, therefore, he's going to be associated with the Olympian order. But as you're reading the simile, it's like, yeah, then you have Aegean you know, going against the lightning of Zeus. So he actually goes with the the, the more, like, hipster, not-that-well-known version <laughs> where Aegean is on the side of the Titans. And I think, like, Virgil's really kind of playing with that. And, like, I think he's, you know, trying to make Aeneas out to be not that great of a guy. Because this is when Aeneas goes on his rage-killing spree. Mm, um, and I think because, like, the... Because the, the Titanomachy and the Jagatomachy get conflated uh, with time or like they kind of like becomes like kind of just like let's throw all the monsters in there <laughs> you know sometimes actually Makes the gorgon sense. is in the dragon time they'll, they'll throw in the gorgon there for funsies you know <laughs> i think because like there are all, all these different versions of it it kind of really fits into like a civil conflict where sometimes in the civil conflict it's hard to tell who's on whose side uh yeah, that's in, true. in a roman civil war especially when you have people changing sides uh all the time mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's really interesting. I also do love the idea of sometimes, and I think it's a lot in Roman, unless I'm just making that up. I know it's also in Homer, though, where 
where there it's just sort of the idea of the Gorgon, mm-hmm. like you were saying, versus naming them or making them three or making Medusa one of them. It's just this idea of like a Gorgon. It's always interesting to me in the way that varies. Yeah, yeah, you're, I'm kind of struck by that too because in I'm thinking of the Euripides is the version. Euripides Ion is the version that I'm thinking of mm. where um, the giant Tamaki is brought up and it just says the Gorgon. And some people think Euripides made that up because he does that sometimes, but. It kind of fits the plot device because in the Ion, like they use the blood of the Gorgon. Uh, Creus is going to use the blood of the Gorgon to kill her son, and it kind of because I also I, I, I also read the Gigantomachy as a family conflict. It's very easy to sort of see. Oh yeah, they're monsters or whatever. These are children of Gaia, and Gaia is the grandmother of Zeus, so it's still like mm-hmm. this is like kind of morally complicated in some ways. And they get, you know, in the Ion, you have like you know a mother about to kill a son and a son about to kill a mother, and I think it's like kind of deliberately evoking the dragon tamaki because of that yeah that's really interesting i forgot about that line so i don't think i don't think i've actually fully read the ion but i know i've read that passage and it might just have been like i have this medusa source book because i'm so obsessed with her and and so i think i must have read that in there because now i'm like where did that come from sometimes i just know i've read things and i'm like when where literally no idea um but i I know definitely check out the whole play at some point it's, it's really great. Play. I will. Yeah. I mean, I love Euripides so much, but I love Euripides to the point where I'm currently trying to expand. Mm. And no, like I, I hear that. Reference other ones, you know, no, but, yeah. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, no, I'm going to cover them all. I mean, and of course, le- we're lucky enough to have more of Euripides than anyone else. So eventually I'll have that as a good yeah. justification. But he, he is the best. I mean, it's just, I know. Thank you. Some I of agree. my friend colleagues yep. will, will come at me for this, but no. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you completely. I definitely have had. Um, people on to defend the others so far no Aeschylus but um, but yeah no I mean Euripides is the best it's just so good his stuff's so weird and great and yeah. dark and bloody and awesome he's always subverting expectations and yeah I think, and I think he, he's really calling into question a lot of social institutions more so I think than Aeschylus and Sophocles is so I, I like him mm-hmm. for that yeah I think he's much more like intentionally rebellious for lack of a better word even yeah. just in terms of the way he treats women and like for the most part, makes them actual people. I mean, yeah. Like I'll, I was like, I could talk about Medea forever, specifically. Right. She's, she's Medea, the best. So, I'm a, I'm a yeah. big, I'm a big medhead. Yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> medhead. I like that. I have to I, call I, myself yeah. that. TM. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, I mean Homer even uh, only refers to one Gorgon. Mm-hmm. So it's also this idea that it's like a very both an ancient idea and not and you know and and medusa is equally ancient because hesiod names medusa and he names three gorgons and yeah the variations on who and what is a gorgon is fascinating to me because yeah yeah, i mean even hesiod doesn't really explain what that is just says they're gorgon and like granted they're the children of sea monsters but then they're not sea deities and yeah and medusa is the only mortal one exactly which like why yeah and to me that makes me think like well, I think there's no reason to suggest that her being the only mortal one could also make her different in other ways. And often the Gorgons are described in this like monstrous, immortal kind of way, which suggests that Medusa then could be slightly less monstrous by being the only mortal one. Because, you know, often in, I don't know if it's, I feel like it's mostly archaic, the art where, because it's very old, where she's depicted as just like a person with wings but ultimately mm. otherwise looks exactly like a person. Usually it's like she's sleeping and Perseus. Yeah. Is I'm thinking of like, yeah, the Attic pottery. She's, she's exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's even the Beotian one where the Gorgons, I think they're fairly, they're fairly, I mean, quote unquote monstrous there. Like they have the very snake the hair. Tusks, yeah. Well, and it, there's one where I don't think they're very tusked mm-hmm. there. It's the, I know it's Beotian, but it's um, I, some somewhere on the archaic period, but it's, um, it's like very black piece. And there's literally one of the Gorgons is standing in front against Perseus and Medusa's lying behind her with her head removed. Mm. And they have like the snaky hair and stuff, but at the same time, it's very like, it's a very powerful scene of this is a sister protecting the sister you've just killed. And it's really interesting because mm. it's very like, I see it as very anti-Perseus in a way that, mm. you know, obviously the stories tend not to be, but the pottery often is very sympathetic to medusa yeah yeah i noticed that too but this particular one like i'd like to take a closer look at because yeah Yeah. i think it's really interesting because like and this goes with like monsters generally too and it's kind of part of like some of my own like research into it interesting how they kind of like can be this way to like other some marginalized group um Mm -hmm. then they kind of can be empowering in, in some contexts like you know with medusa like you know the head of the Gorgon was like an apotropaic device, right? To sort of keep mm-hmm. to keep bad things away. And in some ways, it's just the patriarchy sort of co-opting the feminine for its own purposes. And there's part of that too. But like, I think there is this sort of like sympathy for Medusa, and then later, you know, Medusa as figure of empowerment that that really developed. And it happens with a lot of monsters too. I'm kind of fascinated. Like, yeah, like why do we want to? reclaim monsters or you know it's only how they, they, they mm. in some ways they're like used to, to vilify a group and that group takes it and makes it no this is actually she's our defender or they're our defender which i think mm-hmm. is really interesting i mean i obviously i love medusa but have you um speak speaking of uh tumblr as we were earlier have you seen the other the thing that goes around about the apotropaic nature of her but that suggests I forget what it is, but it makes it this idea that she was like very much a protector of women mm. and not just like a protective symbol. Mm. But it's very Tumblr history. I, I haven't seen that, but I'm, I'm I'm very interested in it now. That okay, yeah, because yeah. yeah. I, I want to say I do I do think a lot of like you know the later reception or the the making of these monsters more sympathetic. The making of these monsters sort of these powerful figures like there's like often some sort of base in it in ancient texts. You kind of sort of start to see the seeds. Uh, of it and then you have like later groups kind of picking up on that so i'm wondering if this this face here if it's seeing is like maybe there's something going on there but yeah, it's so easy to yeah. just shit on, shit on perseus right <laughs> he's uh, well, isn't, I mean, you're, you're you think theseus is the worst isn't that your thing which i think i think you convinced me theseus i believe is the worst jason is a close second perseus i find it's just that he just like did whatever anybody told him to yeah yeah I mean, it's killing um, her in her sleep, but that's just so, like, how do how did ancient, well, exactly. like, audiences even, like, take that? Like, That's the thing, right? Like, nothing about it. He, she also didn't attack him first. There's no reference to her actually, like, harming anyone with her head on her body. It's always just him using her head afterwards, which I find so interesting. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Just jumping in from the future to say that we're about to discuss uh, the piece of pottery that I brought up earlier, and I've linked to it in the episode's description if you're curious. Okay, back in. It really does, yeah. It seems like she's like standing up to Poseidon there, you know? It's a real sort of power Yeah, well, I guess there. it is Poseidon, too, yeah. So it's... That's I mean, interesting, because Medusa's head is off her body, and Pegasus is being born. But then it's also... Yeah. But you're right. Like, where is Perseus? Or is, or is that a different form of Perseus? Or um, I'm thinking maybe it's just he's Poseidon. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Poseidon is the father of Pegasus, so it's almost like mm. this. Almost even more defends my point because I like to really argue that um, it is that the uh, idea of her being assaulted by Poseidon to uh, be impregnated by Perseus and Chrysior is from Hesiod, mm-hmm. not necessarily, because Ovid makes it very explicit, but right. I think Hesiod's making the same point. It's just that Hesiod would never say it was non-consensual because Hesiod did not consider whether things were consensual right. or not. Like, it was, like, it, not a euphemi- Euphemizing is, is... I mean, Ovid is a little bit, but Ovid, I think, is usually pretty good about being explicit. Yeah. Um, but Well, yeah, and certainly in the Medusa, it's explicit. ...is so common, especially in a archaic uh, and even classical, the classical period. Well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the translation, I think, I have i don't know ancient Greek, but I've asked a lot of people and read a lot of translations, and it's always translated as that Poseidon lay with Medusa. Yeah. And I think there's no reason not to describe that as potentially non-consensual, but yeah, people I, on the internet love to hate me for it. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to look at the Greek, but even still, like, you know, it does say just mm-hmm. lay with, like, it's because of the power dynamics uh, of it all, and just yeah. like how Poseidon works, and exactly. somehow, somehow Zeus works, it's like... Yeah. Uh, 
it, it's almost never consensual. Um, yeah. Well, and I argue too with Poseidon specifically, like Poseidon, as much as Zeus, you know, it's was rarely consensual. Poseidon um, was much more violent. Like the, the stories we do have of Poseidon assaulting women are much more violent than the Zeus ones. Like with Zeus, they tend to write them as if like, she wasn't into it, but like, you know, it's fine because it's Zeus. Whereas Poseidon, it's like, it's pretty, it's often pretty explicit that he was yeah. violent and dangerous. So to me, it's just like, well, what is the likelihood that the Medusa just happened to be one where she was into it? You know, right. I don't know. It's, no, I, 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 I totally see that. And I think Poseidon too, mm-hmm. he's kind of like in this inferior position to Zeus. So he kind of has like a chip on his shoulder uh, mm-hmm. about it. And especially like him taking that out. And you know, in awful ways, and this is especially with the sea and just violence. I think there's like yeah. definitely something going on with that. So I'm, yeah. Um, well, even like he got his wife by forcing her to marry him. Like yeah. it, you know, everything about him is super gross. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, I'm trying to get us onto mon- the monsters more. I don't know. I mean, clearly Medusa is a monster, but I just always think I talk about Medusa too no, much. No, I'm happy to, <laughs> to keep talking about it because I had a whole like yeah class just on Medusa. Um, so oh, good. I mean, that's great. What do you cover and stuff like that? So yeah, because I feel like also it's kind of hard to get like the because it kind of gets all, you know, all piecemeal and get like Ovid's version, which is kind of one of the more interesting ones. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I usually have a, uh, uh, they'll read like the Apollodorus, uh, version of it. And then, um, I'll probably give that, that, that brief clip from Hesiod. Um, but then I, I like to sort of pair that with just, um, more modern receptions of, of Medusa. And I kind of talk about how it's like, she's used, it, it's interesting how she, you know, becomes this figure of empowerment in some context, but she's still used for misogynistic purposes today. Like if you use Google, like I'm gonna say, Google female politician and Medusa, and see oh what comes up. And you'll like, you know, mm. probably like seven out of ten times, you'll find something. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. I, for me, I come across it so much on Twitter because, I mean, very often I have got into like Twitter beefs with people. I guess, for lack of a better term, of just by suggesting that Medusa. I mean, various things like I actually at this point really enjoy taunting it because I have all the information to back it up. And I find it interesting to see mm-hmm. where people jump to, because sometimes like if I if I say like, you know, Medusa was defending herself or Medusa didn't hurt anyone or things like like things like that that are I mean, the defending herself is like, you know, not necessarily true based on the original text or not original, but mm-hmm. like, you know, all the sources we have. Um but the the idea that she didn't hurt anyone is pretty explicit in almost every source. Mm-hmm. Like while her head was on her body, there's no you know evidence that she really hurt anyone. Yeah. Um. And then, but the way people will, um, leap to, oh, you're talking about Ovid's version, and that doesn't count because he was a Roman, or the opposite where it's like, no, but Ovid said this. So what are you talking about with who's this guy Hesiod? And the way people like need to tell a woman that she is wrong about Medusa. And by people, I should say, like, these are always men. The way they're men feel men. they need to tell men. a woman, they're always men. Or women who are clearly, like, really defined by the patriarchy. Yes. And, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it, they're still, like, they react in the same way as men. Like, they're just, they clearly have that issue. Um, but yeah, it's it's always, like, 
you can't be right about Medusa. Here's why. And that why varies greatly. So very often it's like the idea that Ovid doesn't count. Like the idea that he's just a completely separate being. It's unrelated to Greek myth is so fascinating to me. Like it just portrays an obvious misunderstanding of the way these things work. Yeah. It's as if, you know, for all we know, Ovid could have been working off of a Greek source. We don't know. We don't know for sure. He may not. Exactly. He may not have invented the idea of, of her being a priestess of Athena. He may not have invented it being explicitly assault. Like still, I, I say, I would argue that Hesiod makes it pretty clear without using any explicit terms. Mm-hmm. But then when I say that they're like, just because he says he doesn't say it was assault doesn't mean it was assault. And I'm like, yeah, but it's Hesiod. Like, and yeah. it's Poseidon. There are so there's, many reasons why you can make that leap. <laughs> euphemizing sexual violence where you can look at the mm-hmm. whole pattern. Like this fits into that pattern. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Between that and the fact that it is Poseidon and it you're not talking about a source that would that is likely to be explicit about a woman's, you know, desires or otherwise. Like, you know, it, it it's just it's fascinating to me to watch the way people react to her in a way that they don't react to most other Greek myth generally. There's something about Medusa that just like creates this mess. <laughs> yeah, cuz I feel like she she like I think it's because like she can still be used for misogyny, you know, in its most extreme form today. But also, she is, empo- you know, she can be this empowering figure. People have adopted her on Tumblr and in, you know, in modern feminist adaptations. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like because of that extreme, people want to take one side of it. Or they're sort of so attached to one side of it, they can't really see anything else. But the whole idea of, like, Ovid mm-hmm. isn't really, like, you know, his myth isn't the real myth. It's like, that's, that's such, like classicizing like bullshit of like oh but like the greeks were making the real myth but, like no like myths just change um, yeah like and, and there's so many years in between it's not like yeah. i mean yeah there's so and, many years in between so many of these sources that people want to claim like one over the other and you're yeah. just like no things shift and adapt and you know it's, and the same thing with monsters too like they're always reflecting i mean with medusa it's often some sort of misogyny but it's like different variations of it in each mm-hmm. adaptation so mm-hmm, yeah. yeah well and yeah and there i got one person once who whose whole defense was that medusa deserved to die because oh, yes because and this is basically a quote like i'm paraphrasing but this is exactly the same point he was making was that she was terrorizing the lands which is like not found in a single anything source nothing there's it's literally not based in mythology to me it sounds like they took another monster who like was terrorizing mm-hmm. like, like oh, these, these boars for some reason yeah boars are monsters uh, in greek mythology yeah. sometimes. they're always terrorizing the land because it's you know, they usually transferred to like another monster like yeah they're all the same right you know boar yeah you know, you know snake woman hair with lady. snakes hair <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but like as if, you know, that she really she really needed to die. The way that she is used in this way or yeah, it she deserved to die. Uh I've heard she allevi- her death alleviated like a pressure on the world. That I've heard from somebody where I'm like you're putting an awful lot into Greek myths that yeah. is not there. <laughs> like, that also sounds like you're kind of taking something else and just like 
there's this image of like yeah you have these heroes who come and they like there's all these monsters that need to get rid of and they kind of come through and like make the world a better place by yeah. by taking them out and it's like you know compare with like saint patrick and the snakes and stuff like that too like they're mm. civilizing the world you know greece used to be a scary place with li- giant lions and boars and then you know heracles came along and and mm-hmm. made everything better you know that's the thing yeah it like wants to connect to that that Heracles level hero that yeah he killed the Nimia lion he killed the Hydra but Perseus and Medusa isn't that it it, no. it isn't in any sourcing it's literally you know a king wanted her head because he expected it to kill Perseus not because he actually wanted her head <laughs> yeah and that alone is so interesting to me because there's no claim like I recently covered Perseus in more detail than I had before and yeah there's nowhere that claims that Medusa had done anything yeah. it's just that he assumed that the process would kill it was Perseus. literally a way like it was his like dynastic anxiety of just like oh shoot yeah like, gotta get rid of this kid here you know like i might as well go ask him for the craziest wedding gift i can or yeah his yeah. wedding gift whatever it is yeah thing i can think of you know yeah yeah just so interesting all of that i like i really appreciate or not appreciate but i really find it interesting in a dark kind of way the way people project their own shit onto Medusa. (laughs) This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. And that's interesting. If you think about myth generally, because again, like 
you know, I was talking about Masha's Masha theory and how there's some sort of like reflection of something about a culture. Um, but I feel like monsters are kind of like a like a microcosm of that, of like we kind of put our fears and anxieties onto these monsters. And I think it sounds like that's what's happening with these people. They're kind of putting onto this monster, you know, something that they're <laughs> something that they're worried about, or you know, something that is is affecting is something that the, that the culture that they're that they're coming from. You know, because I mean, mm-hmm. kind of I think it's what like when you have one author who takes an earlier monster, they're gonna like you know take some of the essence of the original monster, but they're gonna put their own their own spin on it when they refashion mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like they're putting, you know, they're seeing women take hold of Medusa as a symbol of yes. feminism and strength. Then they're like, this is bad. And thus I will invent all of these reasons, right. but claim they're from ancient Greece that obviously Medusa was truly monstrous and horrible and she deserved to die. And there was this whole thing. And obvi- that's why women are wrong for taking hold of Medusa. Yeah. Like, it is that's all like there a, is to it. patriarchal fear of something being taken from them. Like, no, Medusa's supposed to yeah. work for us, <laughs> you know, not yeah, for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. wild. It's just truly it's it hasn't happened on Twitter in a while. And I, I don't miss it. But I kind of do because it's just been a really dark insight into the yeah. way some people think. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I, I also asked about Medusa, too, because most of these students who come in loving myth, they, they know Percy Jackson. And I asked them, right. Remember, well, you know, wh- how is Medusa represented in the first Pe- Percy Jackson book? And actually, they don't seem to remember. And I tell them, like, oh, oh yeah, right. she's a Middle Eastern woman. <laughs> Who's wearing like you know a burqa or a niqab? I can't remember, but like I'm thinking, like, oh my god, like this is. I mean, have Holy you shit. have you like went back and read the first Percy Jackson? No, so right? I was I was too old for them when they yeah, came same. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think our, our, our friend Max Max Polly, uh, yeah. he wrote a great article in Adelon uh, called "The Whitening Thief" that talks about all this sort of like Western civilization language in it. I, I mean, it's, it's throughout mm. the entire novel. It's one part where, like, the one character says, like, yeah, and, like, now Mount Olympus is in New York because the United States is the head of Western civilization and everything. And um, So there's that. But then, Holy like, yeah. Shit. I think, I think it says <laughs> something when you have Medusa a, as Middle Eastern woman. <laughs> it says something about, like, a, a, a cultural, reflecting a cultural anxiety, you know, if you know what I mean. Um, oh my god what my listeners can't see is the my face right now i feel like i'm not <laughs> expressing it enough in words and it's just visual but like holy shit no i had no idea i yeah. I honestly know nothing about percy jackson except that yeah. back when the first movie came out i saw it but that mm-hmm. was also a long time ago and all i remember is that it's uma Thurman. in the movie they, they <laughs> rightfully so <laughs> yeah uh and as much as the fans hate that movie uh they that was, that was a good choice. Was, yeah, holy shit. Yeah. On the one hand, I feel like by, by making it like traditionally attractive white woman like Uma Thurman, there's you know there's something not great about that. But it's better yeah. than you know making her a Middle Eastern woman. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then now I think about why I was too old for it. Like I think it came out in like 2005 or six, the first yeah. one. Um, and I so which yeah. means you know there was a certain something going on in right. a certain Middle Eastern place that that makes that even less cool if it can be even less cool. Yeah. But it's yeah. kind of all from that same time period of like three hundred. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Troy mm-hmm. And and look at the mon- speaking of monstrification generally, not so like classical monsters, but in that movie, like if you read the the graphic novel, which like isn't great either. Like in, no, it's at, very similar. At the end, like he recommends like a Victor Davis Hanson book which is like oh i wouldn't recommend that um but like you do kind of have like you know the 
is all this Orientalism with representation of uh, the Persians and you know uh, Xerxes is so othered and kind of like there's you know I get sort of like an othering with the way his gender presentation is represented. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are no monsters in the graphic novel. That they were all mm. added for the movie. Mm. So like it's definitely like it's they took the graphic novel, which wasn't great, and kind of intensified the racism. Yeah. Uh, in it, you know. That's interesting. Again, I've it, only flipped through the graphic novel. Yeah. But now <laughs> I just remember looking at it and thinking, oh, this is not much better. <laughs> and actually the graphic novel is better with skin tones, but it represents Greeks having darker skin tones. Where in the oh, movie they're also white. <laughs> oh know. my gosh. It's like, um, I mean, in Troy and stuff too, where you're like, why are you all white and like British or American? Yeah. It's all just very weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're right to sort of make that connection with, yeah, it's all around that, that same time period. Mm-hmm. That being said though, again, like I haven't read all of Rick Riordan's book, but it seems like he like, unlike a certain person we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like he's taken the criticism well and has changed. Uh, with that yeah. so it sounds like his uh later novels are much better about like inclusivity and things like that and representation that's good so it seems like yeah. the time he's like kind of figured it out and he's like yeah it does what a certain person who must not be named didn't doesn't do he like here's the criticism like, <sighs> okay yes that was bad and i will try to be better about this you know yeah and it certainly was like i, I there's a flawed argument but there's an argument made for like it was of its time doesn't make right. it right but it's like, if that was written today, I don't think a person deserves a second chance to redo it. But yeah, right. I mean, it you know, something that's that old. And then, you know, if, yeah, it, it's all about, I think, recognizing mistakes and things like that. But yeah, that's, I just cannot, I'm sorry, I just can't get over I that. I remember reading People, it, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. This was like oh longer ago, but not that. I think I read it in like 2015. I was just like, oof. Yeah. This is, yeah. this is hard to read now, you know? I mean, yeah, that shouldn't have come out in 2005 or six either. <laughs> like, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But that's wild. No, people ask me about Percy Jackson all the right. time because a lot of my listeners are younger than me, which is like, I get it. I'm glad that it that it brought so many people into this world and then they continued to learn and, you know, they found my podcast or whatever and then I can teach them even more. Um, but it's funny to me because it's, I it, there's a lot of like, I just, I don't know if I can go back and if I want to bother going back and reading a book that was like it's about an 11 year old that came out when i was like 16 or 17 that now i'm in my 30s and i'm like i just don't think it's worth it guys like because people want me to read it and talk about it and i'm like i'm not going to ever have the same connection to it that people did when they read it when they were young like there's not going to be any of that for me and then now hearing that medusa bit i'm like i'm really i just don't think that people want to hear what i have to say about (laughs) those original ones i don't think that they want to hear it they think they want to hear it and they'd be wrong yeah yeah. Apparently, though, Disney Plus is is making a series with Rick mm-hmm. Riordan. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were upset because like the movie wasn't as good because they didn't work with Rick Riordan. And also because yeah, he, it sounds like Rick Riordan is like you know getting better about like trying to make sure his 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 works are accessible to everyone and not not traumatizing or alienating anyone. Uh, maybe there's yeah. a chance it could be good and and watchable. So well, and I know yeah, I know he publicly hates those movies. Like he talks yeah. about how bad they are compared to his books. Yeah. So. Yeah, though, that's that's really fascinating that because Medusa to me, like in pop culture, I always more think of, you know, Clash of the Titans, I think, has become kind of people's opinion on her. Like mm-hmm. people really take what she is in that original one and kind of make that into that is what Medusa looked like in the mythology, which is fascinating. That movie, the, the 1981 version really kind of has had captured the popular imagination. Yeah, it's made her 
this like snake body, I think is the point of it, right? Like the bottom half snake right. is, is very much a hundred percent like invented by Clash of the Titans, almost calling upon Echidna, who's kind of described mm-hmm. like that in some of the Yeah, it becomes sort of this like a a monster kind of a monster of a monster. We kind of take two of the monsters and putting them together to make to yeah. make her more monstrous. And like yeah, she is so yeah. monstrous in Clash. But then in the, in the remake she's still like she's got the snaky tail, but she's a, a more traditionally attractive woman. And there's probably yeah. stuff we could unpack with that. Um well, she's also I mean yeah, I mean that was just gonna be, this was gonna be fully a technological complaint about that. But she's just so CGI'd in a bad way in the newer right. one. It's <laughs> so weird. Yeah. I think it's even even like more misogyny in the remake. Someone's written an article like where they they kind of pick apart a lot of the ways Shepard's edited, and there's like that whole line where like tell the men did this, you know. And obviously mm-hmm. on the surface it kind of means like humankind, but it could be sort of like men, like you know, sort of like the you know men in in in, in the gender sense, which is like yeah, kind of ick. That's um, interesting. I haven't seen that in a while. The CGI one is. Mm-hmm. The, I call it the CGI CGI one. Yeah. <laughs> the, the remake is so it's so CGI. Um, you know, we see the human and the monsters, and that's people reclaim them because, like, you know, often people who are said to be monsters aren't really monsters. You know, they're they're monstrified for you know some sort of for some sort of nefarious reason. You know, mm-hmm. one of the theses is that the monsters also are kind of desire, or sort of like we kind of project our our fantasies onto the monster. And I think it's why, like, as much as like say you can have a monster that you know is meant to sort of marginalize women. But later, because, you know, Medusa is like a powerful female figure, she can be readopted. And I talk about like there's just a larger pattern uh, of that, even coming mm-hmm. to the modern era, too. And sometimes like they, they, like monsters get reclaimed by figures you wouldn't think. Like, for example, like the Minotaur is like huge in queer communities. Like they love mm. uh, the Minotaur and he kind of pops up as 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 gay and, and or genderqueer and in different contexts. I'm kind of fascinated by that, too, where like you know, the Minotaur is this man and creature and like. Yeah, you know, why do these monsters get? Re- and I don't really have the answers, but I'm just like I'm using using this to explore things. Uh, really, yeah. kind of like why, like why do we like kind of like want to take these monsters back? Um, but I think there's something very powerful about that. This idea of you're, you're taking a figure that was used to, you know, harm or oppress one group, and then they can take it, and it can be, you know, the the, the symbol of empowerment. So the base of it is that monster. And maybe this is obvious, but like monsters are a reflection of some sort of cultural anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, but at the same time, they can they can be reclaimed, and I think it kind of like speaks to the, you know, the 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 mutability of of myth and how it you know it's, it's, I find it kind of hard sometimes to to study what we study because like oh my god like look at all this misogyny like all of this like ethnocentrism and you know look how it's using colonialism but it's kind of cool when they can be you know reclaimed so that's why I find it um, particularly interesting mm-hmm. i well i think ultimately i feel like just even you repeating that part of it is i think we've just talked about all of that without even necessarily going into the more like the deeper academic logistics of it so i think that's kind of great too because you're right like that's just sort of how the conversation about medusa went and and even just the monsters and i like the now I'm just gonna rehash what we talked about, mm-hmm. but I, the the giant stuff and the the difference between the Greece and Rome versions of them mm-hmm. are very interesting to me. So yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, are there any other monsters like specific monsters that you have a particular affection for that you want to talk about? Um, so yeah, I talked about the Minotaur. And I think like he like besides Medusa is like probably one of the more famous ones. I think it's interesting how like yeah the queer community has really kind of 
taking him up and um there's like a I think it kind of starts early. Like, like there, are, there we have pots of, or uh, with baby Minotaur on them. So it's like Pacific e and oh, I know, like that one's and, so cute. And it's just so cute. It's like, oh my god, but he was like a baby once. And like, I think there are like I'm thinking for Tullus sixty four particular, where like you have Ariadne sort of saying, "I killed my brother for you." You know, like that wasn't easy. I think it's sort of just like, yeah, he was somebody's brother. He was somebody's child. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. I, I, this is more. I don't have an answer, but I think it's, I, I, there's yeah. there's such a fascination with the Minotaur, even though he's such like a kind of like one of the most monster monstery of the monsters. Like he eats people. He's part human, part part cow. Um, but there's mm-hmm. something about him that really sort of resonates. I don't know if it's the isolation, maybe sort of like with, with people with marginalized identities, they kind of like felt that isolation of being stuck, you know, in the maze and being be made out to be monsters by society. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's also that really. <laughs> for lack of a better word, that really sexy statue mm. of him and Theseus. Mm. And I swear, like, so much of any kind of, like, theory about him and gender and sexuality and stuff comes from that because yeah. it's pretty explicit. <laughs> it's very it's very sexualized, yeah. So that, that's, that's actually definitely part of this, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that's interesting. No, well, I had, um, I had Corbeth Fraser on, too, recently mm-hmm. to talk about the Minotaur as it relates to like theories around autism, which was super interesting. Oh, really? Okay. That's definitely, there's a lot of connections there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's similar of that, the isolation, right? That the, and the labyrinth and, and all of those things. But I think the Minotaur and Medusa are some of the most fascinating because you can apply so many different things to them. And even though they're, you know, supposed to be monstrous, it's so easy to connect with them on and their stories on like pretty human levels in different ways like yeah you know whether it's angry men on the internet yelling at you for no reason Mm -hmm. or (laughs) yeah the isolation of a minotaur or yeah so many things it's just yeah they're all so fascinating Mm -hmm. it was like sometimes when i talk about these monsters and i talk about you know monsters that aren't necessarily related to the classical world and like how like you kind of apply these theories like gritty i'm sort of fascinated Mm -hmm. by you familiar with gritty the the mascot yeah the Philadelphia Flyers, who went from like you know hated figure, like what was this? What, this is the most the worst mascot in the world to like, oh my god, he's this anti-fascist uh, symbol. I think I see a similar pattern going on too. He's a monster, but he kind of becomes this like. I think interesting how like monsters often associated with chaos, like Typhon, like like the giants, and but he's still like this this chaos figure, but he's like good chaos. Uh, yeah, I think it's really interesting, and like we kind of live in absurd times. He kind of is like this fitting monster to sort of reflect that, but he's like this sort of positive figure which I yeah think that's really so true he has a lot of muppet characteristics too which i think lend him to certain generations mm-hmm. you know like i think he just is kind of he has that part what makes me think that he might as well be like either you know amongst the muppets the traditional muppets or on sesame street or you know any of those things where i'm just like he just kind of seems like a nice guy but also yeah he has become <laughs> an anti-fascism figure in a really fascinating way but also don't mess with him because he will mess you up. <laughs> you know? That's true. That's true. Yeah. He he wouldn't get along on Sesame Street. He'd get kicked out. But... Yeah. 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 That's super interesting. I hadn't thought about him. So I applied it to him. And also, I have you seen the movie Luca? The, the Pixar movie Luca? No, I've heard of it. Okay. It's pretty cool. I won't give any spoilers in it. But like the, the premise is that there, there's this young sea monster who lives. He's like a, uh, a fish shepherd who's off the coast of Italy. If he wants to go... It's kind of like the, the premise of like a little mermaid. Like he wants to go beyond his world and, and, and see the, the the upper world, where his parents 
Well, let him, but eventually he does. But it has actually has the same rules as the movie Splash. I don't know if you remember the movie Splash. <laughs> basically, when you, it's been a long time. When you get yeah. dry, you know, you become a human. So that's basically how it works. So he's this monster. And also, he's going to this town where um, they hate sea monsters. So he has to kind of be careful. He doesn't get wet. Um, but he meets this other boy. And it's interesting. I definitely like started watching him. Like, oh, they're clearly like, this is a romance between them. Like, I, I read them as, you know, sort of, there was a sort of a romantic thing going on. Between them, and nothing like explicit happens, but like after the end, I'm like, oh, clearly, like that was like a, a romance, you know, a queer romance. I'm like, wow, Disney, mm-hmm. you know, good for you. But then, like the uh, director came out and was like, no, or the writer came out like, that's not meant to be it. But like other people were definitely reading it that way, especially like with a connection of like queer people and monsters. I'm like, there's there's something uh, going on with that. And so it's a very sort of lovely story, and mm-hmm. I think it kind of leads into the whole like questioning, like who is the monster, and because like so basically the, the, this pair they go the city and they want to like buy a Vespa. It's very Italian stereotypes, but they, <laughs> they want to buy a Vespa so they can, so they can see the world. And it was, Oh, there's this triathlon happening. It's like, it's like a, like a bicycle race, a, a, like a, a swimming contest and a pasta eating contest. Again, full of Italian stereotypes. Um, <laughs> like, okay, if we win this contest, then, you know, then we can get the Vespa to see the world. But the, their competitor, is this sort of like super kind of preppy bully like figure. And his name is Ercole. And then I'm like, Ercole. And I'm like, that's not, I'm looking up, Italian word for Hercules. Oh, my God. His name means Hercules uh, in, oh my God. <laughs> in English. And, like, he's kind of this, you know, op- opposing figure to monsters. But he's the dick, right? He's the one, like, he even wears the sweater crossed over his, you know, like, not wearing the sweater, but, like, kind of wears it over his shoulders, like, in a really tough yep. way. And he's just he's kind of this bully figure. And um, I think it's kind of really subverting the whole, you know, Hercules as monster slayer uh, thing. And then it's, it's, That's it's, really it's, it's a queer, it's a cool queer uh, story too. So yeah. yeah, I did not know any of that. I feel like I must have only heard the name of it yeah. because that sounds lovely, and now I want to watch yeah, it. Yeah, check it out. But that a lot of yeah. interesting sort of monster imagery and questioning the monster. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating, especially the Hercules bit. Like, yeah. oh my god, that's I'm like whoa! This seems like there's one statue in the town center where they go to, and there's this kind of really burly statue of a man he's like holding a sea serpent and it's like choking a sea serpent and i'm like it, it kind of reminded me of like just images of hercules fighting the, the ketos mm-hmm. yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah so check it check it out i will i always think of um hercules too when he's a baby and he kills the two snakes mm-hmm. i mean that's a baby but still. oh yeah that's actually i didn't thought of that actually i think that's going on there too yeah because very, it's mm-hmm. very like strangling from what i remember yeah 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 well, he does do that, but as a baby. He's, he's a strangler. Of... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nemean lion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he resorts to that a lot. I mean, fine, he had to in the Nemean lion, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, honestly, I think this has been really fascinating. This has been great. No, thank you so much. Just love talking about monsters, and I got to talk about Hecaton Kyries. So. No, I'm a big fan. We should keep, we should keep sure. talking about because I like. I think that's like a future project. I want to like dive deeply more into them, particularly Breerius. Oh my god. Aegean, because I just find that the fact he's on like two different sides of the conflict in different versions, and mm-hmm. his connection to Thetis I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. The more you research him, please feel free yeah. to reach out and come back on and talk oh, yeah. about Hecaton Kyries, because I mean, people know that about me too. It's just the amount that I will try to say that word as much as humanly yeah. possible. I think I made yeah, a joke on Twitter a while ago that like. Like the hundred handers sounds like it'd be like a nineties band or something like that. Like I don't know, the, but the heck, yeah. Yeah, I can't even say true. the Greek. I, I know Greek, but I can't even say the name. Like heck, yeah, but yeah. 
Uh, and I don't know Greek, so I just whatever. It's I'm the heck of hands. It's mostly right. <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, yeah, the hundred hands. You know, that's fine. There's yeah. even a reference to that in uh, Odyssey, but oh, again, there? it's like yes. Oh my gosh, you need to keep playing this I game. Gotta, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta play more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah no there's like a whole but it's another one of those like this is a rationalization this is like an understanding of it there's like a competition and it's called Mm. like the battle of a hundred hands oh they love that rationalization Mm -hmm. i was talking about that game they had that rationalization but then they have the crazy monster stuff like i know yeah yeah um but yeah thank you so much do you want to um promote anything do you want to have people find you on twitter or anything like that if you want to share uh sure yeah i mean uh I think like when like I have like a book coming out on that. I'm co-editing a book on Thetis. Um, oh, that's great. That's hopefully come out in the spring. That's when it should be coming out. Um, but yeah, you can share my Twitter handle. Yeah, I'll put it in the episode. You have a Latin Twitter handle, don't you? I, I do. I, I, I don't know. I listen. Yeah, I, I, I heard. Really hard. I heard your podcast with Avon and yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Uh, yeah. Latin poetry is awesome. Okay, I, I get that. You know, it's no, not the, it's great. The pure, untouched it's... myth, but like, <laughs> it's really cool what the Romans do with myth. Okay, you know. I know the Romans are great. I more even mean it from a basic <laughs> level of tr- people trying to then search for you on Twitter because Maxwell, Max, he had the same problem. He was like trying to say it, and I was like, people aren't able to find that, so I'm just gonna put it yeah. a link in, and people can follow you on Twitter and find out more about the giants or the hecaton Kyries or fetus or we have um we have a lake here that's called fetus lake i think it's i spelled the same i think i found that when i was like because i was like doing just like some deep dives because like, mm. what, like what does status mean because actually my my uh, I, i'm writing one chapter in this volume and my chapter is about thetis in the 1981 clash of titans because notice she's not in the remake they, they, they cut her out okay so i have not seen the original you've not seen the original no, I need to. I don't know why I haven't yet. The original's actually kind of good. It's campy, but it's like good campy, and like yeah. it's, it's much older. Like you gotta see the original. Maggie Smith. I know. Dame Maggie Smith plays Thetis. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. Okay. You know, you've just sold me. I've been meaning to forever, and I saw Jason and the Argonauts, and I really enjoyed that for the campy. I think this is better. It was. I think. I think okay, anyway. I'm gonna watch it, especially if it's Maggie Smith that plays Thetis. That's yeah. amazing. And she's like the villain, but I think she's a really cool villain. Um. Yeah, yeah, and I have a whole theory that like, cause like, like so Laura Slatkin wrote this book in the '90s. That's basically about like Thetis kind of has this secret power and you can kind of like catch glimpses of it in the Iliad and later adaptations. Cause like, notice how like she like Zeus has to kind of listen to her, you know, mm-hmm. and like she can kind of influence Zeus. Like, why can she influence Zeus? And then the whole thing of like, oh, like when they find out that her son's going to be greater than his father, we got to marry her after a mortal. Like she, she gets her power, some sort of power from her, like from her womb. Uh, and that kind of gives her like, a, even though she's sort of marginalized in many ways, she can kind of influence uh, the other Olympians. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause she is, she's not like used very often. No. And then like, have you read song of Achilles? By yeah. Miller? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of mm-hmm. don't. Lo- I, I love that book, and I love uh, all of Miller's work. But I kind of don't love how evil she made Thetis in that. Cause I feel like in the Iliad, she's yeah. like, kind of a very sympathetic figure, and I get that she needed a villain. And like, there is actually like from having edited this volume, like there is a tradition where Thetis isn't that great. I think she's like pretty good in the Iliad, but there's like tradition that she like mm-hmm. killed a bunch of her kids trying to make them immortal. 
Yeah, the whole really? like trying to make Achilles immortal. Like, there's the thing yeah. story about the dipping, but there's also a story that like basically she's like doing like a Medea type thing, where she's like oh. putting kids into a pot to try with like <laughs> magic to make them immortal. But the first like six died, and it's like it, you know serious serious mom so mom shaming thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So there is like a basis for like evil fetus, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it kind of comes later, which is interesting. Yeah. Thank you again so much for doing this. It's been really fun. Fucking love monsters and giants and hecatonchires and Medusa and uh, any excuse to talk about them with somebody else who knows them that much. It's so good. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And um, yeah, it's great to talk with someone who loves monsters like Medusa as much as I do. Right? Nerdy stuff. It's I so know. good. And video games. Yes. Oh my God, exactly. All of it. Everything I wanted and more. Yeah. Ah, nerds. Thank you all. As always, this was an incredibly fun conversation to record. You always know they're fun when we go so far off the rails. Truly. So fun and so fun to listen to again after so many months after when I edited it just now. I love this part of my job so, so very much. But I also have to say that I, I wrote the first half of this intro and edited the episode on Wednesday. Now, it's Thursday. And I'm recording this. It's Thursday, and Russia has invaded Ukraine. Normally, I would have some pithy ending to an episode, some fun thing to say, but I don't. I don't know how to handle what I'm watching unfold and what I'm reading. I didn't want to say anything at the top of the episode because this was recorded so long ago, and it's great, and my guest deserves better than to have it introduced with such horrifying news. But I also don't want to pretend it's not happening or that I'm not paying attention. To all my listeners in Ukraine, I'm sure you won't hear this right now, but when you do, know that I'm thinking of you and your entire country. Thank you all so much for listening. I am Liv, and I love this shit. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. 
Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.